Hello there, and welcome to The Time Machine with Trish and Mike. I'm Mike. And I'm Trish. And we're glad you're with us once again. Hello, Trish. How are you? I am great, Mike. How about you? I am good. I'm good. I'm excited. You know, next week, uh, we're doing a little things a little bit differently here on the show. We're going to have a special in honor of Canada Day and our Independence Day coming up next week. We're going to have a special episode where we will be looking at some of the differences between the U.S. and Canada. So, of course, mm. if anyone listening or watching us on YouTube is curious about something, because there are differences between our countries, obviously, not just geographical differences and stuff, but even mm-hmm. just common routine daily life thing. Like, I know we've discussed before about cereal, how we have a whole aisle full and you have like eight choices of cereal or something. <laughs> at least at least in edmonton maybe if we have our our trontonians because we were talking about how maybe they're they're likely the most americanized city right or maybe uh yeah yeah i would guess it would probably be toronto probably the most yeah. but yeah you know just anything you've ever kind of been curious about uh don't just assume that oh you know uh, yeah you know canada is america and america is canada we're quite different in some ways and so we'll be having a fun look at that if if you go back yeah. to one of our uh, episodes towards the beginning, we did a whole uh, pronunciation of cities uh, that was quite entertaining. Maybe we'll see if we could do a round two, perhaps, of that mm-hmm. uh, About as well. All over the whole countries. Yes, that yes. sounds like. Uh, you know what? We're, well, we'll just go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. I think we will do a round two on that uh, next week for you. But if you've got so something, we need people to send us some suggestions then too. Yes. So send us suggestions. Shoot us an email. Uh, time machine with trish and mike at gmail.com or our instagram page send us a dm on there well throughout the coming week we will have uh, posts up and stories uh, so we'll just reply to any of them and we'll get a list together and we'll do all that next week yeah as but i tell my students there are no stupid questions so fire them away there are no stupid questions but there are stupid people anyway mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. But you're not because you listen to our show. So that makes you smarter than the average bear. They have bears in Canada, right? Of course they do. Lots of bears. Yes. Lots of bears. Yeah, that's right. Vancouver was the Grizzlies when, well, when there's, Vancouver there's... had the NBA team. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. We have Grizzlies, but then again, bears, to... black bears, spirit <laughs> bears. Th- th- then again, Toronto has the Raptors. And I don't think there's a Raptor running around Toronto. But, you know, mm, hey. no. although they played their season in Tampa this year because of that's true. They did. Yeah. You know, COVID. But. Anyway, won't it be nice to one day just have an episode and we won't like have to talk about COVID at all? I, I think we're getting there. I know you just had your second shot last week. And I did. So you you survived. And yeah, I, Canada I'm, Day, I'll be fully vaxxed. Woo. Yes. And uh, so I've, I got my second dose on Star Wars Day. So I've been good now for about six weeks or so. That's awesome. Fully vaxxed. So mm-hmm. we're getting there. Wow. We're getting there. Now we just need the border to open up because our government's extended it to July 21st. I thought it was July 26th. Was it 21st? I don't know. I saw you mentioning it the other day. It's the 21st. Yeah. Yeah. Another 30 days. Getting closer, though. It's got to be getting closer. (laughs) One thing, though, that is closer is, of course, you know, summertime is now Mm -hmm. finally here, which 
doesn't make much of a difference in Florida because it's always hot. But right, summertime, people like to go on vacation. They like to go to theme parks. And the Coney Island Cyclone opened on June 26, 1927. So, of course, and Coney... You wouldn't think it's that old. You wouldn't. And it, it's funny because as I was doing my research for this, I was thinking... Because I looked it up because you know I've heard of it, but I've never like I actually mm-hmm. went on YouTube and I did like an onboard you know POV uh, you know point of view writer thing. Oh, and I, cool! And uh, I was like, whatever, I this because I'm I'm not a big coaster guy. Like I don't do like the crazy stuff, like the flips and the the. I don't do any of it. Barrel rolls, <laughs> but I'm I'm like I would ride this, and then I started thinking this is like a hundred year old roller coaster. I don't. <laughs> know if i really want to write it or not um of, of course obviously parts of it have been you know replaced and right repaired so it's not like a hundred year old wood anymore but is it still wooden uh yeah it's still a wooden oh, old school goodness. wooden roller coaster um it reaches a maximum speed i didn't realize this of 60 miles an hour i did not realize it went that fast yeah that's so, pretty fast uh, that's that's almost 100 kilometers an hour for you yeah if not pushing like 110 yeah, it's it's up there, y'all. Anyway, uh, what I didn't, this was another thing I didn't know. Of course, now Disney is the largest amusement area in the United States at this point mm-hmm. because, you know, they've outgrown, you know, surpassed other areas. But up until World War II, Coney Island was actually the largest amusement area. In the United States? In the United States, yeah. Wow. There were three amusement parks on Coney Island. At that point in time, you only ever think of like just Coney Island and like the one. Right. Like you didn't realize. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, so the the cyclone is located at Luna Park in Coney Island. Now, this Luna Park is not to be confused with the original Luna Park. There was Luna Park, Dreamland and Steeplechase Park and other smaller independent amusement parks as well. So this was like a whole big happening. Uh, when the ride was built, it cost about one hundred and seventy-five thousand to build. A lot of money. Yeah, for like nineteen twenty-seven. <laughs> I know, right? And uh, how much do you think it costs to ride? Math questions. Yeah. Okay, we're. I'm going to go with I know something like seventy-five cents. Twenty-five cents. Dang it. <laughs> which would be equivalent to about three dollars and seventy-two cents now, which. Which is real cheap. Which is real cheap. So, of course, what do you think the current price is to ride it? Spoiler, it's not 372 No, I would not expect so. I'm going to say like 18 bucks. 10 Okay, so 18 Canadians. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> $10 for a ride that lasts about a minute and a half, minute That's 40. That's a good chunk of change for under two minutes of fun. Right? Like, can, can I ride twice for that? I mean... I don't know. That's that sounds like an utter nightmare for me. Like I hate amusement rides. I hate wasting money. Like this would be not a good thing for me. I I mean, that's like three hundred dollars an hour if you wanted to ride that thing for an hour. That's my gosh, you'd be so sick. Well, I know somebody. Well, I don't know somebody, but I could tell you about somebody who has ridden it a whole lot. Well, who's this? Uh, Michael Boodley in 1975 set the record for most consecutive trips on the Cyclone. He wrote it 1,001 times over a 45-hour period. What? Yes. Why? And how sick was he afterwards? <laughs> I have no idea, but I can tell you that two years later, 19-year-old Richard Rodriguez broke the record riding the coaster 
um, it actually doesn't say how many times he wrote it, but he wrote it for 104 hours. He would take short bathroom breaks between rides and would actually eat hot dogs, M&Ms, and drink shakes on the ride itself. What? That sounds like such a lawsuit waiting to happen. Like you would choke while well, riding it. Uh, well, forget that. Like if I'm next to you and you hit the bump the wrong way <laughs> on the roller coaster, your milkshake goes flying and hits me. Like that's terrible. You I, just get like binged by an M&M. <laughs> right. It's funny. A few weeks ago, the new Jurassic Park roller coaster opened at Universal Studios here in okay. Florida. And uh, there was actually these, I, will refrain from calling them what I'd like to call them. But these <laughs> these kids were throwing ice at people on this roller coaster. Like yeah, but how do you get on the ride with the ice? Like no, don't no, they, no. they 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 were they were in the park, like on normal ground. Oh they were on it. the ground. Oh at the people on the ride. Yeah. It's like oh that's not cool. Do not do that. So but, I'm just imagining getting pinged with you know an M M&M and M going sixty miles an hour. That would not I mean, it wouldn't would kill you, but that could like screw your eye up, but hit you, you in the get eye. Get a pretty big welt. Yeah, That's terrible. Yeah, it is. Hmm. Charles Lindbergh actually rode it a couple of years after it opened and said it was greater than flying an airplane. Really? Yes, I found that interesting. Someone who's someone who's like devoted a good chunk of their life to flying would say that. That's kind of right. Impressive. Like, he, he's qualified to make that statement. <laughs> True. So yeah, so. Uh, you cool. know, would you go on it? You would go on it. You said you when you I, watched the, the video. Yeah, I, I, I would go on it because it doesn't flip. It doesn't go upside down. So it's just, you know, a lot of up and down type thing. So I, I, I would go on it. I, I will. I when like we go that. to, uh, you know, New York State for our visit that we keep talking about planning now that we've talked about the <laughs> Statue of Liberty and the Brooklyn Bridge mm-hmm. uh, in previous episodes, I will hold your stuff, Mike, and you can go on the roller coaster for both of us. You can go oh, twice. I can go twice. All right. I'll pay for your ticket. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we we can we can make but that it'll, happen. It'll only be in like you know loonies and. There you go. Uh, there. Uh, yeah. Now I want to watch Looney Tunes. Because you said that. It reminds me, we got Space Jam 2 coming out in a couple of weeks, and nobody oh, has yeah. sent me an essay saying that that movie should happen. So I yeah, feel no. I, I feel that people are with me that this movie is completely unnecessary. Be, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. All of it. I'm seeing stuff in stores now for it. So I'm like, well, they, eh. keep, they keep redoing movies that nobody wants, whereas they're totally ignoring things like, um, oh, now, of course, I'm going to forget the name of it. Just have What's... an original idea, people. Well, an yeah. original idea would be great. But Treasure Planet, why is that not live action? Yeah, that right? would like be that's that would be specifically a great designed. Movie. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I the cartoon's agree. awesome. Although I didn't realize it was Matt Damon until like the end of the movie. And then I read the credits <laughs> and I was like, really? I felt like such an idiot. Uh, one last thing real quick on the cyclone. I forgot to mention. It is considered an irreplaceable structure since a timber supported coaster can no longer be built under modern new york city building codes so, so like if it goes yeah. under that's it they can't rebuild it right like it's not like if they came in and said okay you know we're going to do something else with this land and somebody decided they want to recreate you know the cyclone 2 or something in a different mm-hmm. part of the city they, they they wouldn't yeah i mean i get you could i'm never gonna say never because you could make get you know exemptions and special permits and what have you but it's mm-hmm. um you couldn't just decide to do it today and be like, oh, I'm going to build it. No. Too many rules and laws. Just let us be wild, New York State. Come on. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Of course, summertime also means another type of cyclone, which is hurricane season. But Hurricane season. Yeah. Right. Because cyclone and hurricanes are 
the same. It just depends on which what? part of the world you're in. Correct. Right? Hurricanes, cyclones, typhoons, they're literally all the same. It just matters where you're at. And sometimes these things just spin out on the open ocean and don't hurt anybody on land, thankfully. Um, But if you're out on a boat, Mm -hmm. it's important that you know they're there. Yeah, this is true. We're going to be talking about Joshua Slocum. Uh, He is going to be the first person to sail single-handedly around the world solo. So he's born February 20th, 1844, and he is assumed to have died on or shortly after November 14th, 1909. So right away, you realize our story is going to have a little bit of a mystery. So welcome to actually from my area of the woods. He was born in Annapolis County in Nova Scotia. Uh, so it's probably where I grew up. It's about, I don't know, like four hours away from me, five hours He's going to be the fifth of 11 children. And his father actually left the United States shortly after uh, 1780 because of his opposition to the American War for Independence. They were Quakers. So uh, under the Loyalist migration to Nova Scotia, his family is granted 500 acres or about two kilometers squared of farmland in the Annapolis Valley, which was really common. Actually, a lot of Americans would come up because of this Loyalist migration deal. It's like, oh, if you want to defend Britain, you could get free land. So around my area of the woods, uh, it's actually quite a few names are American names. So kind of interesting. Now, the father's super strict, and he uh, made boots for local sailors. His grandfather is going to be the local lighthouse keeper. And Joshua like hates this life altogether. He wants to run away and spend his life at sea. So at 14, he succeeds and joins a ship as a cabin boy and a cook. And then by the age of 18, he earned the title of second mate. Now, here's an interesting, another interesting American connection, right? So originally American, he's going to go to San Francisco and settle and reclaim his American citizenship. So he bounced back and forth between our two countries. And after a period of salmon fishing and fur trading in the Oregon Territory in the Northwest, he's going to return as a schooner. Uh, in a trade between San Francisco and Seattle. I guess there was kind of like a run between both states. That makes sense because, you know, they're two of the larger cities out on the West Coast. Yeah. So yeah. he's he's running back and forth. He's getting really famous for his pilot. Uh, yeah, it's piloting, sailing, right? being the captain. Um, he's going to start going uh, from San Francisco to Australia and then back around via Alaska. So he starts going all over the place. That's a little bit of a longer trip than to Seattle. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the the trading starts to expand. He starts to get more, like I said, famous people start hiring him out and things like that. Um, He's going to eventually go to Sydney, Australia. Right. So as he's doing these San Francisco to Australia and then back through Alaska, he uh, ends up meeting a woman there. And in a month's time, Christmas, 1870, he meets, courts and marries a young woman named Virginia Albertine Walker. (laughs) So he I can only imagine for this, these two families, like within a month, four weeks that they get married. And she actually joins him and they live most of their life uh, until her death, sailing around the world and doing all this kind of crazy stuff. They uh, have seven children, all born at sea. Um, Four children uh, are going to survive to adulthood, Mm -hmm. right? So already a very interesting life. And we're not even at the part where he starts sailing around the world by himself. He's going to be shipwrecked a few times. Um, Once they get abandoned and shipwrecked, there's uh, outbreaks of smallpox and mutinies and pirates. His wife dies at sea. 
At 42, he's going to go on to marry uh, another lady, his 24-year-old cousin, Henrietta Hetty, in 1886. And then she, too, is going to join him at sea like his first wife. But she wasn't really up for it. And so eventually she, uh, after getting stranded in, in Brazil and shipwrecked, and they have to build a boat from scratch and then sail 55 no. days back to the U.S. She's like, you know what? I'm I done. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is not what I signed up for. Not what I signed up for. So he, right, you're just like, how does so much happen to one person in their life? Finally, at the age of 51, uh, in 1895, he is going to plan and start the most thrilling adventure, which is his solo uh, sail around the world. From He starts in Boston, Massachusetts, and then he goes up and visits family before taking off on July 3rd, 1895 for this trip. Which let that be motivation for anyone listening to this. This guy didn't achieve his greatest thing until he was 51. That's so it right. It doesn't matter how old you are. It's never too late. If you are right. still breathing, you still have an opportunity. Continue. That's your well, motivational moment. That's your today. motivation now. Be like Joshua. <laughs> So it's going to take him three years to get around. And he goes like, it's an amazing adventure. Like you could, we could spend a whole episode just on the one trip going through the Suez Canal and going through the Straits of Magellan makes the full Magellan people. Yes. <laughs> so, it's a reference to, to a few episodes back when we talked about Magellan. If you want to know what the full Magellan is, go back and listen to it. Go back and check that out. He's going to go around the Cape of Good Hope before finally heading back to North America. And so he returns to Newport, Rhode Island um, after having circumnavigate the world. Uh, but what's unfortunate is no one really cares when he comes back. It's, a, it, you know, first person to do this all by himself. But the Spanish-American War had begun two months earlier, and that was all that was in the headlines. No one cared about him coming back, which was really unfortunate, right? You think you spent three years of your life <laughs> devoting to this epic adventure. And uh -uh. nobody cared. Nobody cares. That's what we what care. Did happen, we care. What did happen, though, is he published an account of his epic voyage, and you can read it called Sailing Alone Around the World in 1899. That's a good title for the book. It is a good title for the I book. Mean, I mean, I like books that kind of tell me what it is. I don't have to like I know what I'm signed up for. Mm -hmm. If you and go Harry Potter. OK, well, what is Harry Potter? Who is a Harry Potter? Maybe is he's it, a potter. Does he make pots and does he have like a long beard? I don't know. We have no idea. But sailing alone around the world, you know what you're getting into. It's like snakes on a plane. <laughs> That's true. Samuel I've never seen that movie. <laughs> it, like, well, okay, this movie's about some snakes on a plane. And Samuel L. Jackson's in it. So, so you know there's going to be some... Some, yeah, it's going to be something. Bad words. Yeah. I thought it was funny, though. There's a quote from one reviewer claiming, this is the, the quote, like the, you should go and, and read this book. Boys who do not like this book ought to be drowned at once. Well, a little epic there. That's a little harsh. You're like, okay. What I thought was interesting, though, then he um, ends up, you know, kind of riding the wave of fame on this book because it becomes really, really famous amongst sailors and adventurers. Um, but he starts to run into some expenses as the book sales die down. And so he decides at 65 that he's going to go and sail from uh, Vineyard Haven, Massachusetts for the West Indies uh, on one of his, he, he would go off on these like winter voyages to warmer places. Which makes and, sense. Yeah. 
and he he's planning a new adventure into South America. He wanted to go and explore uh, down along the South America, going up into the rivers and things like that. And in July uh, 1910, his wife informed the newspapers that she believed he was lost at sea. So like almost a year uh, or well, it's like, what, 10 months. And despite being an experienced ma- uh, mariner, he actually never learned to swim. And he thought learning to swim was useless. Okay, that would have to be like a prerequisite to be a captain of a ship like that. Like It's like you have spent your entire life from the age of 14, if not earlier, because obviously he sailed up to Canada from the United States before 14. You spent your whole life living around the sea, on the sea. Your children were born on the sea. You're like, ah, learning to swim is useless. Like, are you kidding me? I mean, if you don't know how, it's fine, but you need a life jacket. You would think so. I I mean, my mom grew up where my grandfather, they lived right on the ocean, right? My grandfather would just throw them in and be like, you got to learn. He thought learning to swim was extremely important. But uh, 1924, the age of 80, he's going to be finally declared legally dead. No. Yeah. Took off 1909. Uh, His wife's like, I think he's lost at sea, 1910. The police don't make it legal until 1924. Well, at least they finally get closure. I guess so. But that poor, I wonder, like, is she waiting on, you know, uh, Well, she's dead now, too. Well, she's dead, too. But I mean, during that time, right, as a wife, you can't claim any things until until... they're legally dead. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that thing, those things take a while. Yeah. So I'm assuming the war got in the way and all that jazz. Yeah. I'm sure she had a trip to Coney Island planned. Maybe. But I mean, we have no idea where where he ended up or what happened to him. There's a total mystery on like when he actually died. So I don't know. Kind of interesting. It would be really cool if someone somewhere found any evidence of where he was or his boat or anything like that that'd be cool maybe one day but you gotta figure if it's been this long you know there's no telling where in the ocean it could be well and really unless you're in colder waters your boat's gonna just disintegrate right and like up in the arctic they found sir john uh, franklin's boat but that's because in the frigid cold waters of the arctic the boats were preserved so if he's going somewhere tropical all evidence of that boat's probably toast. Probably, but it's unfortunate. Yeah, I I just love a good mystery, though. Yeah, and it will remain a mystery. Remain. Mm-hmm. But congratulations for circumnavigating the globe. Yeah, that's impressive. Pretty crazy. You have a story though about circumnavigating something else. Yes, and it is quite possibly <laughs> crazier because mm-hmm. it is on June twenty eighth, nineteen ninety seven, Holyfield Tyson two. This is the iconic, infamous, legendary, memorable, whatever you want to call it, rematch. Disgusting. <laughs> yeah, we call it that too. Between <laughs> Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson, which, yes, mm. Mike Tyson was disqualified for biting off a piece of Evander Holyfield's ear. Oh. Uh, this, so this is... infamous. <laughs> so... Okay, so this was a rematch from the previous November when they had the first fight in which Evander Holyfield won. So this was the big hyped rematch and everything. And um, of course, it was in Las Vegas because that's where a lot of the big fights are. In the first fight, Holyfield wins in the 11th round after referee stoppage. So Holyfield beat Tyson. So now we're getting the big rematch seven months later. And... So the match begins, and again, Holyfield is dominating Tyson. 
And 32 seconds into the second round, Holyfield ducks a punch from Tyson, and in doing so, headbutts him, which is a no-no in boxing. You can't headbutt mm-hmm. somebody. And it cuts, opens up a cut over Tyson's eye. And in the previous fight, Tyson was complaining that Holyfield was headbutting him a lot. So as the third round starts to begin, Tyson comes out of his corner without his mouthpiece in. And Judge Mills Lane, the referee, who you might remember as being, you know, the judge he had the uh you know like all these people's court courtroom shows he had one mm-hmm. for a while he was um and he's the the referee remember the old celebrity death match on mtv oh yeah, yeah. He, he he was the referee for all those oh okay that was him let's get it on that that was him so <laughs> he orders tyson back to his corner to put his mouthpiece in so he goes puts it in and eventually he winds up spitting it out they get kind of tangled up and Holyfield kind of has Tyson. They're kind of, you know, how you see boxers sometimes mm-hmm. where they're, they, they, they almost look like they get close. They almost look like they're hugging because they're trying mm-hmm. to stop the other one from being able to punch them. And Tyson put his head over and bit part of Holyfield's right ear um, and spit it out in the ring. Oh, and so that Hol- picture in the newspapers. Oh, <laughs> so, Holy- so awful. Holyfield starts jumping around and you know he pushes Tyson away. At that point, the referee, you know, calls timeout to see what the deal is. And Tyson pushes Holyfield as he's walking away. And so the referee gets in the middle, he has to split it up and everything, and he sees his ear bleeding. So they kind of stop the, the fight for a few minutes to figure out, you know, what they want to do. And he originally Lane originally wanted to disqualify Tyson. Because he was like, wait, now what? But he kind of conferred with the ringside doctors that Holyfield could continue. And he said he was going to deduct two points from Tyson, which you you use the point system if boxing, Mm -hmm. if you go to a a draw and um, or the time limit, you 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 get to the end of the rounds. Right. Decided the match would continue. And he explained the decision to Tyson, you know, saying that, you know, they think it was part of a, you know, Tyson was saying, oh, it was a punch. I didn't bite him or whatever. And the referee was like, you know, BS. I know what you did, but don't do it again. So the fight resumes in the third round. And again, kind of same situation. Now he starts to bite the left ear. Holyfield's able to escape. This one just kind of scratched his ear a little bit. He didn't actually get a chunk. Trying to give him a matching set is all. (laughs) Yes. So at this point, um, you know, he... The referee steps in, he splits them up, sends them to their corners, and then winds up, once he realizes he ain't, he bit him again, disqualification, the fight is over. Right. And did they did they not at any point, I mean, I don't know, I'm not a doctor, but like, wouldn't he want to have that part of his ear reattached? Well, Would that just be an impossibility? Um, It was just like the cartilage on the outside, so it's not anything really structural. Oh, I thought it was like the lobe. Uh, no, it was like part of the, like the, the top part i mean yeah you'd want it but it i mean i guess i don't think you can save that piece of your i don't know yeah ears are not a common uh a common thing that you have injuries to yeah so he definitely circumnavigated his head though he did because right to left yeah exactly oh my god uh so tyson winds up being fined three million dollars and have to perform community service and his boxing license was revoked for about a year yeah, but clearly this was his plan. Like he was going to, he was frustrated and going to do something, which is why he started that round without the mouthpiece. Right. Like he was There's I'm tired intention. of you headbutting me. I'm going to. I'm going to nip you. Yeah, exactly. Oh. But all's well oh that God. ends well. That when they both 
wound up retiring from boxing and have become best uh, have become uh, good friends and they are still to this day. I don't think I could become I mean there's one thing with like a like a little nibble <laughs> from a friend I guess or a significant other there's something totally different than like actively aggressively taking a chunk yeah i couldn't Uh, be friends with that person he's a better person than i am (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so that happened that was a thing that was a thing yeah crazy the 90s were crazy yes they were i want to go back and relive them like we we experienced a lot of crazy stuff growing up (laughs) (laughs) we really did like like weird like there are stories that will be told for generations like wait what now you know oh, so funny not, not the most civilized not uh, the most civilized thing. thing no 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 which is going to bring us into our final story for our episode is june 29th 1989 the new canadian museum of civilization is going to open in hull quebec uh, and the two main buildings are actually going to be designed by a very famous metis art- architect douglas cardinal so i've actually been to this museum it is phenomenal in 2013 it was actually renamed the canadian museum of history but i prefer you know museum of civilization and uh gatineau hall is just across the ottawa river so if you ever go to ottawa which is the capital of canada not toronto not toronto it's toronto no uh you can walk across there's a bridge obviously that connects both places and you can just walk across and go and visit it and they used to have certain days that were free so i spent a summer in ottawa Oh my goodness, back in 04. And uh, a lot of us would go to Gatineau Hall because in Quebec, the drinking age is 18. <laughs> and in Ottawa, Ontario, Ontario, it's drinking age is 19. So my friends and I would walk across the bridge over to Gatineau. But it is a beautiful building. You can see it from the Canadian Parliament and it's kind of um, all rounded. So Douglas Cardinal uh, is very, very famous for this, like not having corners in his designs and kind of mimicking nature. So like the flow of rivers or things like that. It's beautiful. It welcomes. He he builds the buildings to go along with. He doesn't create a building. So like if there's say the there's a curve in the road, the building may have a curb to it yeah so he it's all about mimicking just nature so curves of rivers and and, i got you now yeah natural landscapes so he i actually the the church that i used to attend here was one of his early designs and it's same thing there's no corners it's all rounded and there is a uh, spiritual purpose to that as well so it's mimicking landscape but also in many indigenous cultures um if it's rounded corners it's like uh the spirit's can't collect they don't have okay yeah 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 so there's kind of like a, a spiritual aspect to it as well but the museum welcomes 1.2 million visitors each year it is actually the most visited museum in canada and uh it has roots stretching back to 1856 so already back in 1856 they were starting to collect artifacts and having a designated spot uh in this museum and it is one of our oldest public institutions in canada and it has about 20,000 years of human history that is presented. And if you're interested, anyone online, there's about 218,000 artifacts available online that you can go oh, wow. and check out. Yeah. And it's a big building. It's four levels, 25,000 square meters of display space. Really, really nice. You can spend a whole day there. It's, I, it's one of my favorite places that I've ever, like museums in Canada that I've gone to. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty cool place to go. Mm-hmm. And um, 
with Douglas Carnell. So I mentioned that he was a Métis. Uh, I don't, there is Métis in America, but I don't know if you are familiar with that term, Mike. No, but it's possible we call it something else, maybe. Well, and it's a mixed indigenous and European heritage, Okay. but it's a, a specific cultural organize, like a grouping as well. It's one of the three recognized Aboriginal peoples in Canada. So we have our First Nations, Inuit and Métis. They, okay. They're separated and there's different laws. I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. yeah I probably kind of like how we have different uh, tribes here. Yeah. We have, you know, the Seminole tribe, the Cherokee tribe, the, you know, Navajo. And so for yeah. for us, all Navajo. the tribes would be collected under like indigenous or first nations. Okay. Yeah. And then Inuit is just like separate and Macy is separate. There's different qualifications to being involved in those groups. Gotcha. Yeah. But Joseph, uh, Douglas Joseph Cardinal, who's born March 7th, 1934, he is of this uh, Macy heritage. So uh, they're actually in their majority. You can be anywhere in Canada, but primarily their ancestral land is accepted as the three prairie provinces in Canada. So Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, with parts of Ontario, British Columbia and the Northwest Territories and then northern United States. So a lot of uh, blending in the early days of Canada and U.S. history when uh, these individuals would go down into like Montana. So you might have people who identify as Métis in those northern states, and they speak an ancestral language, which is known as mischief. And there's their history and political tradition and all that is very unique. They're, it's such an interesting group of people. And again, you could spend a whole episode talking about their founder and the history of justice people. But Joseph Cardinal is a Métis, and he's based out of Ottawa now, but he's originally from my province. So he was born in Calgary, Alberta. And like I said, he follows those forms of uh, his art, his designs mimicking like landscapes and nature. What I found out interesting is that, uh, or found interesting is that although he's known as one of Canada's most influential architects, he's also really well known in the United States. So if you're involved in architecture, I guess you might know this about him, but he designed the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. in 1998. Cool. Yeah, which is another, I would love to go to Washington, D.C. A lot of museums there. Mm-hmm. That's another place you could easily spend a week and still have oh, stuff left to do. That would be so nice. And I think it's interesting that uh, it mentions that although he always identified as Métis and Indigenous, it wasn't until he actually spent time in Texas and was interacting with the Indigenous people there that he really started to celebrate his own faith and uh, culture and um, wear more traditional clothing and incorporate more of the uh, Métis and Indigenous aspects into his designs. I was like, oh, that's such a neat story for our show, like this unique blend of Canada and U.S. And, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. That was cool. That was cool. But yeah, I do love his work. Like if you're into architecture, you should definitely check him out because his, his designs are just beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Check it out. And be sure to check our show out next week for the special U.S.-Canada episode. Right. Yes. And tell them how they can be a part of it, Trish. So you can leave us a voicemail on the Anchor. Uh, well, I guess it's Anchor app, Anchor website. You can go to the website. I don't know. Can you? Can you don't you, need the app. Do you have to have the app? I don't know. I don't think so. Check it out. Go check out Anchor. It's a good program anyway. It's kind if of you, interesting. If you can't do it on the website, download the app. Yeah. You can reach us on Instagram, the Trish, uh, Time Machine with Trish and Mike. 
Uh, you can find us on YouTube if you pop it into the Google. Subscribe, hit like, and make us legitimized on there. You can drop us an email at the time machine with Trish and Mike at gmail.com. Lots of ways to contact us. Yes, and mm-hmm. do that because we want to hear from you, especially for next week. Mm-hmm. And with that being said, we'll catch you next week right here on the time machine.